This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. John Langhans served in the 154th New York Regiment, a regiment that fought at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg before marching to the sea with Sherman. Langhans' great-grandson, Mark H. Dunkelman, has spent much of his life following in the footsteps of that regiment and writing its history. In 2005, he joined us on Civil War Talk Radio to discuss the previous book, Brothers One and All. And since then, he has followed the tracks of the regiment through the South, through Georgia and the Carolinas. In his latest book, Marching with Sherman, through Georgia and the Carolinas with the 154th New York, he describes not only how the regiment fared, but how civilians responded responded at the time and how their memories of the march have been passed on to Southerners today. Join us for a fascinating look at Sherman's march then and now with Mark Dunkelman today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from East Carolina University, the Brewster Building, home of the History Department, third floor, A-Wing. Not speaking for the History Department, or the Brewster Building, or the University of North Carolina, or East Carolina University, or any other component of the system, and I know my guest will speak for himself today. It is a beautiful Friday afternoon in June 2012. It's that peaceful time of year when the students are gone, the faculty are gone, everything is quiet, we can actually get some work done around here for a change. Uh, it reminds me of my my colleagues who were engaged in preservation and uh, artifact conservation at the museum, the, the lamented Lincoln Museum of Fort Wayne, Indiana, that uh, if they had their way, all the artifacts would be in storage all the time. All the manuscripts would be kept perfectly preserved so that everything would be in darkness and dry or perfectly humid conditions. No one would ever touch or see anything. That would be the ideal way to keep a historical collection. Needless to say, as a, a user, a researcher, a consumer of the collection, I didn't agree. I wanted everything out all the time. So we had to reach a compromise. And so it is here at the university. If we could just have the students and faculty gone all the time, I could get all my work done in this department. But wouldn't be much point in having a department uh, if there were no students or faculty. So, so we look forward to them coming back in the fall. 
just as we look forward to Civil War Talk Radio coming back in the fall. There will be no live show next week. There may or may not be one the week after. This may be the end of our 2011-12 season, depending on how some arrangements work out. Uh, We'll try to post that on impedimentsofwar.org. That's the Civil War Talk Radio uh, website for information about what's on the official website. That's www.impedimentsofwar, all one word, .org. Go there, see who's going to be on the show next. And uh, if we do come back on the 22nd, it'll be our last show for the season, if this one isn't. And in the fall, we'll have lots of interesting things. We'll have a couple shows dealing with Civil War music, a topic we haven't really talked about uh, nearly enough, or at all for that matter. We'll have uh, uh, John Michael Priest, Mike Priest, talking about the Battle of Antietam, close to the 150th anniversary of that battle. And we've got a number of other people that I'm working with to get on the show and should uh, be bringing us some interesting stories. It was a pleasure talking with Civil War uh, students at the the roundtable meeting in Rochester, Michigan, the Israel B. Richardson Civil War roundtable last week and getting some suggestions for the show. Next week on Monday, uh, June 11th, I'll be talking with the roundtable meeting in Raleigh, North Carolina at the Museum of History. I think it's at 7, maybe 7.30. I'll be there on time one way or another. But if you're in the area, I'm sure they would welcome uh, guests or new members coming by to join, and I'd certainly be happy to talk to any Civil War Talk Radio listeners, as always, and get your suggestions on who you'd like to hear on the show and uh, what topics we might discuss going forward. You can add to the weight of your suggestions by giving me money. That works in politics and almost anywhere else in the world. You can donate to Civil War Talk Radio uh, using PayPal on the Impediments of War website. There's a button that you click. If you don't have a PayPal account, it will still find a way to take your money. It's quite remarkable that way. Uh, And if you send $20 this way, I'll be happy to send you a copy of All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln and keep things uh, going in that way and use the money that you send to pick up copies of the books that we talk about, which sometimes the East Carolina University has and I don't need to buy a copy. Sometimes the publisher sends me a copy and sometimes I actually have to dig into your contributions and buy it for myself. Uh, either way, it, it, any of those ways, it all works out ultimately. And it has certainly worked out that way today. I was able to get a Uh, review copy of today's book because I uh, knew it was one I'd want to talk with you about having spoken to the author before back in 2005 Uh, and that author is Mark H. Dunkelman his book is Marching with Sherman through Georgia and the Carolinas with 154th New York Mark are you there? There he is Mark how are you? I'm doing fine how about you? Not too bad Um, uh let me start out as, as uh, acquaintances often will do and ask about your health. I, I heard you were uh, convalescing recently. Are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing fine, thanks. I had okay. a surgery early in April, and uh, I'm back on my feet and feeling pretty
pretty good at this point. As a matter of fact, next week I'm heading off to Washington for a research trip, so one that I've been looking forward to for a couple of years. Excellent. Well, that is good to hear. I I was off my feet for a, a couple of weeks after a soccer injury, uh, playing uh, in the geriatric league locally here, uh, and, and just got engaged with a, a younger player who kicked me too hard, and I've been on I was on crutches for a little while, but I'm back. Well, I'm glad to hear you are, are doing well and able to, to travel and so on. Uh, you and I last saw each other in Snow Hill, North Carolina, uh, while you were working on the present book. So that must have been uh, at, at least four or five years ago. That was in February of '07. I was in the towards the end of uh, my research trip for Marching with Sherman at that point, and giving the seventh, I talked in seven towns along the way in Georgia and South and North Carolina, and Snow Hill was my last one there at the Green County Museum, and I remember showing you my home away from home, the station wagon, where uh, I was pretty much living out of the car a lot of the time on that trip, and had all my notes and boxes full of stuff with me, so... I, I remember that. And in your book, you also mentioned that uh, you, you play dobro, uh, and which presumably means you must play uh, you know, old-time or old-country-western-type music. Uh, for that I, I, actually, the dobro is my second instrument. The first is pedal steel guitar. Uh, the and, electric table. Uh, I'm sorry? Uh, the, the electric table, as it's sometimes called. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, the dobro, and I love those two instruments. I, I do love uh, old-time, hardcore, honky-tonk hillbilly music, but I find myself playing in a trio now, and we're doing uh, very quiet, peaceful folk music type of stuff, and uh, it's, it's actually quite nice. I'm having a lot of enjoyment. I, it, it's sort of independent of my interest in uh, Civil War. I listen to and play... Uh, some of the old-time string band music. I'll get out of the fiddle and, and scratch on it occasionally. And it would have been fun to have brought that down if if you'd had your dobro in the the station wagon uh, that day. Yeah, exactly. Five years ago. If I uh, make it back down to North Carolina and have it with me, we'll have to have a jam session. Absolutely, that would be good. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you wrote Brothers One and All, which we talked about uh, seven years ago now. Uh, that was already your third book on the 154th New York. Uh, yes. Your, I've published two since. Well, that was my question. What what number are we up to with Marching with Sherman? Marching with Sherman is my fifth. Uh, there was one in between Brothers One and All and this one called War's Relentless Hand, 12 Tales of Civil War Soldiers. And the subtitle pretty much tells what that book was about. In essence, it collected human interest stories that I felt were as dramatic uh, as Amos Hummistons, the, the soldier who was found dead at Gettysburg with the picture of his children in his hand, he was the subject of my second book. Amos Hummiston was by far the most widespread and well-known human interest story to emerge from the history of the 154th New York. But um, the 12 soldiers that I chronicled in War's Relentless Hand had stories that were perhaps just as dramatic, uh, had surprise twists, etc., or strong personalities as the Humiston story, but the difference was, in most cases, they didn't become national celebrities like Amos Humiston did, and I just wanted to their, resurrect their stories and uh, bring them to the, the public. Now, I 
mentioned just briefly in the introduction that you had uh, an ancestor in the regiment, uh, but how did you come by your, your interest? Is that what sparked your interest in this regiment? To, oh, to follow it as yeah. you have? And you know, Jerry, I, I discussed this in, in the introduction to Marching with Sherman, but um, recently I re-listened to our previous conversation on Civil War Talk Radio, and I went into a lot more detail with you the first time we talked about this than I actually did in the introduction to my book. But it was family stories that started my interest in the Civil War as a child. And my father told me these tales of his grandfather, who he grew up on, on the family farm with and knew until he was 16 years old when John Longhans died, uh, and these stories about marching with Sherman to the sea. And uh, at one point, I, I tape-recorded my father telling me these stories and made a transcript of it, of our conversation. And so I have his words on paper, and, and they're sort of engraved, you know, that way in my memory. And the way he presented our ancestors' experience was marching through Georgia. He never mentioned the Carolinas. It was always the march to the sea to start out with. And as they marched along, they would take the pigs and chickens from the farmers and plantation owners along the way. And the farmers and plantation owners would protest about this, but that was the way the army would live. And the other thing that my father stressed was in in telling me his memories of his great grand of his grandfather's stories, was the flocking to the army of the slaves, and what an impression it made on my great grandfather, and the fact that one young man in particular attached himself to my great grandfather as a sort of body servant, and followed him throughout the campaigns, according to our family legend, and after the muster out all the way up north, and my great-grandfather had no use for a hired hand. He and his family had a small farm in western New York. And so my great-grandfather eluded this fellow somehow. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I've, I've often wondered, you know, is there a, a black family someplace up north that has an oral history that they've passed down through the generations about how their ancestor accompanied a young German-American soldier from a farmer plantation in Georgia or the Carolinas up north and uh, have a parallel legend of our own family's legend. And that's one of the striking things about this book, that you you do talk a lot about family legends that you collected in the course of your research. And the it, it's you frequently encounter when talking to uh, Southerners a sense of, regional pride of heritage of family pride and it's it's striking in a sense that you are here asserting well yankees have families too and yankees have family heritage and pride uh just as strong and in and in addition curiosity which may even be stronger to find out how many of those family stories are really true uh, and you certainly have that curiosity that, that drove you to do this. Before I ask you about the book itself any further, let me also touch on some a way that I've stayed in touch with your activities over the last uh, seven years since we did the interview together is through your your newsletter, your online uh, newsletter of the 154th New York Descendants Group. 
that seems to be a very active group that keeps coming up with new bits of information, new resources all the time. Uh, how how did you organize that, and how does it work? Well, I've been researching the 154th New York seriously since the early 70s, and I'd like to take a moment, actually, to note that my longtime partner, Mike Winey, died earlier this year. Mike was curator of special collections at the U.S. Army Military History Institute at Carlisle, PA, for many years, uh, overseeing their tremendous collection of Civil War photography, and a lot of people in the Civil War community got to know Mike in, in that capacity. And um, I'm going to really miss him. This will be the first time that he hasn't been at a reunion in many years. I started, I, I was invited to speak after Mike Wannies and my history of the 154th was published back in 1981, uh, the Hardtack Regiment. I was invited to speak at the Allegheny Area Historical Association, which is a, a small town in Cattaraugus County where the majority of the 154th was raised. And... um I showed up, and a lot of the people were there that I had met in the course of doing research for the book, but there were a lot of new descendants there, and some of them had just some fantastic stuff with them. Uh, one woman had with her the smashed mini ball that had wounded her, her grandfather at the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, and, you know, pictures. So these people had all this stuff, and I was thinking to myself, you know, the veterans, our ancestors, met on an annual basis, um, from the uh, in the late part of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century, held regimental reunions. Why can't we as descendants do the same thing? And so a couple of years later, in 1986, I put out the first call for a gathering. I couldn't call it a reunion. We hadn't gotten together yet. A gathering of descendants of the 154th New York. And we met in an old church in outer New York where war meetings had been held, and the minister had uh, left his congregation to serve as chaplain of the 154th New York, a very appropriate place for us to meet. And, and there was a really heartening turnout, and we haven't stopped. And, you know, it's, this year we're going to hold our 27th annual reunion. And over the years, I just kept hearing from more and more people. And then... I kept thinking, how can I make this a national search? Because it was mainly confined to western New York, and I knew that there had to be descendants scattered not only across the country, but perhaps around the world. And the Internet drops into our laps, and it's, it's really great to be working at the dawn of the digital age and, in my case, have a teenage son who could set up a website for me. And we put up a website inviting descendants of members of the regiment to please contact me. And initially, for the first, I don't know, five years or thereabouts after the website went up in the early 90s, I was hearing on an average from a new descendant once a week, hmm. you know, from, from wherever, uh, saying, you know, my great-grandfather served in the 154th New York, and in most cases, I had more information about their ancestor than they had to share with me, but that's perfectly fine with me. I, I, I love to share the material that I've found on these men with their descendants because it's their, their descendants that have shared so much material with me uh, that's enabled me to do this work over all the years. So it's, it's a mutual relationship in that regard. I, I wonder if there are any other regimental descendant associations like that or certainly any others that have had 27 annual reunions. Are you familiar with anything like that? Well, there are. Um, 
and I, I'm embarrassed that I can't name them specifically, but there's a main regiment uh, that's been meeting nonstop since the civil, since the veterans were alive. So, in other words, the Veteran Regimental Association was carried on by a Descendants Association, and it's been a continuous, nonstop thing. Uh, whether it's still going or not, I'm not sure, but, you know, I remember seeing notices about this in, for example, the Civil War News a, a few years ago. Well, now that I think about it, I spoke last summer at the, the 5th Maine Regimental Museum in Portland, Maine, and it was built by the Descendants as a sort of summer cottage for them to spend their holidays at, Mm-hmm. And it was inherited by their descendants and continued on. And it's it's no longer strictly the descendants of the regiment who own it, but uh, I, I don't recall all the details, but the building is still there and it's still used for the same historical purposes. And right. to yeah, yeah, the, the fifth main. So I believe there was also a higher regiment that's being remembered by its descendants, and I've heard of a southern regiment, too. There might be one or two others, you know. Uh, but Interesting. Uh, it's it's interesting. I, I would encourage anybody that is interested in a particular regiment to try to do something like this because the more you stir the waters, the more that's going to turn up. I've often wondered, is it just luck that I've been able to find so much on the 154th New York? I'm, you know, at this point, I'm I'm just a few letters shy of 1,700 wartime letters that I found by wow. members of the 154th. 25 diaries, portraits of over 250 of the men, uh, some of which I've got multiple portraits of. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty sizable body of material. Uh, and does it exist for other regiments out there and is just out there for the finding, or was it somehow meant to be? <laughs> yeah, that's know? a really good metaphysical question. We'll take yeah. a short break and ponder that. We'll come right back in just a moment. We're talking today with Mark H. Dunkelman, author of Marching with Sherman through Georgia and the Carolinas with the 154th New York. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market Meet best-selling authors, find tantalizing new books, learn the latest healthy living tips, and be inspired to coach yourself to success on Star Style. Be the star you are every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio. The Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, and her health hero daughter, Heather Brittany, fire up the airwaves with upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio. It's the Power Hour on Star Style. Be the star you are. Thursdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Come play with us. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We're talking today with Mark H. Dunkelman, who knows more than anyone on earth about the 154th New York Infantry Regiment. His new book is Marching with Sherman Through Georgia and the Carolinas with the 154th New York. And we talked in the first session a little bit about the the roots of, of, uh, of Mark's interest and particularly the uh, Descendants Association that thrives to this day, the, uh, uh, that he organized, the, uh, uh, and, and his career of writing books on this particular regiment that have really borne fruit with this current work. Mark, in the introduction you talk about how many tries it took to, to actually write a book about the march through Georgia. Uh, why didn't what what happened there? This isn't something where you just said that'll be my next book and you went and did it. Uh, you had some false starts. No, actually, uh, while I was still doing research for the Hardtack Regiment, my first book, I had visited most of the 154th battlefields: Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, Chattanooga, Lookout Valley, uh, the fighting at the Atlanta campaign but I hadn't followed the route of the march to the sea. And so my wife and I found ourselves in Atlanta in July of 1978, and I determined to follow the route. And I was going to do the Carolinas campaign as well, by car. Well, we had a little mishap, which forced us to basically scrap the trip. And that's the Chigger story that uh, I tell in the book. And I told the audiences when I made my speaking tour in the South during my research trip. And, well, you heard it, I guess, in Snow Hill. The audiences <laughs> love this story because it makes the Yankee look like a fool, I suppose. And uh, so that was my first attempt. And two years later, I had this grandiose idea where I was going to follow the, the route again and I made a proposal to the National Geographic Society. I proposed an expedition where I and two photographer friends of mine were going to follow the route of the 154th New York through Georgia, following the same timetable. So in other words, we'd have left Atlanta on November 15th and marched the same amount of miles every day. We were going to do it on foot. And as I put it in my proposal, my goal was to compare the historical realities of the march, I think is the way I put it, with memories of the march today, you know, the, how people think about it today. So way before I knew anything about memory studies, or indeed before memory studies had become popular, as popular as they are today in Civil War historiography, I had this plan. I wanted to gauge it. It, it fascinated me. Um, and the idea was to, to get a book out of it. Well, that was shot down, that idea. So I put the Sherman's March book and idea on the back burner until uh, finally I just knew that I had to write this book, and I made arrangements to, to make this trip, and I made it in, the, uh, in six weeks in the winter of 2007, and I drove 3,500 miles to cover the 850-mile route from Atlanta to Savannah to Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, meandering my way back and forth here and there, and uh, I had a really great trip as far as I was concerned. Uh, I gathered a tremendous amount of material. Now, to get back to a point you made earlier, um, 
legends are a big part of it. And one of the things that wound up fascinating me is compare my family legend of, you know, this sort of triumphant march to the South with protesting Southerners, but, you know, we're just taking their pigs and chickens and we're freeing the slaves. No mention of destruction whatsoever. So here's, here's a uh, historical amnesia, if you will, in, this, in the family legends handed down to me. Whereas down south, all these legends of sermons and marches, uh, <laughs> you're entering a real thicket of, of differing things going on down there in that regard. Whereas there's sort of this popular memory, if you will, of Sherman's March as a scorched earth, just sheer destruction. On the other hand, I was very influenced. Early on in my research, I came across an article by a folklorist at the University of Georgia named Alyssa Henkin. And for a number of years, she collected legends about Sherman's marches in the state of Georgia. And her findings fascinated me because the legends that she collected weren't about the destruction, which you might expect would happen. The legends were about the places that weren't destroyed by Sherman. And the legends purported to explain why these places weren't destroyed by Sherman, because as everybody knows, Sherman destroyed everything in his path. And so I found these legends fascinating and uh, you know as I figured I'd encounter them when I went down south and indeed I did but then in the course of analyzing what I call the reminiscence literature that I collected uh, in my research uh, in other words not the the letters the few letters and diaries wartime uh, primary sources by the civilians along the regiment's path. And I confined myself strictly to civilians who lived along this very specific route, the 154th New York Follett. Um, uh, in the reminiscence literature, which I used, even though other historians have kept it at arm's length, um, primarily the memoirs assembled by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and material that found its way into family histories and local histories, church histories, that type of thing, uh, in the post-war years, I started finding these motifs, if you will, cropping up repeatedly in these post-war reminiscences. And they just fit the definition of legends, well, and I've identified, I I've identified them as such, and uh, I point out several different motifs that uh, keep cropping up in these southern stories, and I think that that's sort of the contribution of this book, is identifying these post-war legendary motifs. I, I would completely agree. I thought that was the... the, the most interesting part of an interesting book was was your your ability after a while to catalog and even to reduce to a few words uh, the, these these motifs the, these same uh, stories that would come back they keep cropping again up. and again yeah yeah and and that fits perfectly 
uh, I'm kind of a fan of, of John Harold Brunvand, the folklorist at the University of Utah that's written a lot of great books and, in fact, an encyclopedia of urban legends. Uh, and these just fit the definition. And I... The, these little well, you, for, for the readers' sake, let, or listeners rather, let, let's. What, what is an example of, of one of these? How well, the, the most ubiquitous story down there is the dropped, what I call the dropped corn legend, and this one you hear repeatedly that all that was left when the Yankees departed was the corn that was dropped where the horses were fed or the mules were fed. So, Southern women in Sherman's wake had to go and, and pick up these kernels of dropped corn to feed their starving children. And this is a repeated motif in, in stories, you know, all, all along the way. Um, another one, one was the, yeah, single kind late Yankee. Many stories tell about these swarms of hideous, mostly foreign Yankees, you know, Irish and Germans, largely, uh, you know, ransacking homes while one kind-eyed Yankee looks on and is the single kind Yankee who will leave a bag of meal or a ham with the family or, or, or otherwise take care of them and deplore the depredations of his comrades. He's the single kind Yankee. And again, every now and then, this, this pops up in, in stories. It, it was just fascinating how this these kept repeating, and how they, uh, as you'd say, if if it happened one time, they'd be believable. Uh, but when they happen over and over again, then you start to realize that they must be repeating patterns that they've heard or picked up somewhere. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and you Jerry, mentioned that one of the single surviving animal. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. The escaped cow is a good one. <laughs> you, you could call that one "Bossy Come Home," I think. Yes. Although that would be rather too cute a title. But I, I came across a couple stories where, you know, the family cow was taken by the foragers, and, you know, weeks later, the cow reappears. It had come all the way back, back home. Now, the chances of a cow escaping Sherman's men, uh, good luck with that one. <laughs> that, that one is interesting because it, it also implies the, the loyalty of the cow. That, I mean, and as you point out in the book, cows actually will follow a homing instinct and will come home if they're left somewhere. Right, right. But some of these cows tra- traverse great distances. It, it, it becomes <laughs> absurd. But that, that gets us to uh, perhaps a more important angle, the, uh, the behavior of the, the enslaved people. In these legends, often uh, their loyalty is central uh, to the oh, story. Well, yeah, particularly in the UDC legends, although they <laughs> they're also quick to point out, you know, treacherous slaves. It's always there's a treacherous and a loyal slave frequently right. in in the same tale. You know, one betrays the other. Um, well, I also discussed the fact that you know <sighs> memories of the march. Uh, as they've evolved through, you know, the post-war writing, and particularly the UDC writings, which were very regimented by the national organization, uh, they were they were formatted in essence by the national organization, and you weren't going to get anything but lost cause mythology 
And that's why historians have tended to stay away from these as source material. But to me, I thought they were fantastic source material in examining memories of uh, the marches. Well, as you point out, the United Daughters of the Confederacy had as their mission the, the telling of the true story of the the war between the states. They would not call it the Civil War. Yes. And they, they, they sought to get certain textbooks into schools and, and allow only their version to be taught. I had an interesting sort of flashback on this this past week, attending a local uh, historical society gathering that has that operates a uh, a collection of historic buildings or reproduced buildings that look historic uh, near near Greenville here in North Carolina and a new board member invited me to come with the idea why not have the the public history students at East Carolina work with these people and as I listened to the presentation uh, it, it just struck me what a gulf there was between the kind of history that was being that this organization is interested in presenting and what you and I as historians would want to do that that it, it this was much more like the UDC I don't I don't quite I don't want to say it's as negative or or telling a racially charged story as the UDC does uh or did but rather um uh, it was all about heritage it was all about memory it was all about uh values historical accuracy or, or, or interpretation or analysis were not what they were interested in mm-hmm. uh, any more than the UDC was. The UDC had, you know, God had told them what the right, well, they knew what the right story was. Right, yeah, divinely it, inspired. It was divinely inspired, and they were going to tell it, and nothing yeah. was going to stop them. And in a sense, that is what the local institution here is, is going to tell their story of, of old Greenville mm-hmm. and old Pitt County, and the interference or, or the assistance of, of a professional history department is probably not welcome. And that would explain why the two have not collaborated over the last 20 years. I told one of my older colleagues here, oh, hey, the local, I won't give their exact name, uh, they, they, wanted, they invited me to their meeting and he cast his eyes skyward and said, good luck with that. Um, and now I know what he was talking about. Well, I want to talk more about these stories because they are, are fascinating. This, this, what you encountered, uh, why, why a, a mansion or a town survived the otherwise ubiquitous torch of Sherman's men, right, right. and Man- why that happened over and over. But first, we're going to take another short break, so we'll come right back and talk more about these stories. Uh, talking today with Mark H. Dunkelman, author of Marching with Sherman through Georgia and the Carolinas with the 154th New York. We'll be back with more on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to listen and talk. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on voiceamericakids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for voiceamerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at voiceamericakids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to voiceamericakids.tv. Everyone has a belief system that they stand by. 
It's comfortable and safe. If you believe that a hot stove will burn you, you won't touch it. Sometimes beliefs like this are practical, but some belief systems may be protecting you a little too much. These are the ones that might be holding you back. There's a secret to changing your belief system, and by doing so, achieve goals and live a happier, better life. Start by tuning in to Subconscious Beliefs with Dr. Hein Lambricks, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Mark H. Dunkelman. We're talking about the 154th New York and its experience in the campaigns with Sherman through Georgia and through the Carolinas. The 154th New York, which was organized in 1862, fought originally in the Eastern Theater. It was at Chancellorsville and at Gettysburg. It went west when the 11th and 12th, or 11th, uh, yeah, 11th and 12th Corps were transferred uh, west in 1863 and then uh, fought at Chattanooga and then accompanied Sherman down through Georgia, served uh, briefly as the uh, it was one of the regiments that garrisoned Savannah in the winter of 64, 65, and then made the march up through the Carolinas. That's the bare bones factual story of the regiment, but this book is fascinating for how it describes uh, the men's experience on a day-to-day basis, drawing on letters and diaries, and also the responses of civilians in the path of this regiment. And uh, Mark, as you know, you're following just the 154th Sherman, divided the army into two wings, and they, they crossed uh, a fairly broad swath of southern territory, so you're not looking at the whole thing, just where these boys went. And as we left off at the end of the last segment, what I found most fascinating about this book was the the reminiscence literature that grew up after the war and was retold into the 20th century that appears uh, in one in a sense that it's it appears in Gone with the Wind the novel and the uh, and the the movie and continues to th- survive in present day memories not just in the South but many places that. Uh, first, the Sherman's men destroyed everything in their path, except for this house over here, which belongs to my family, and let me tell you a story about how it survived Sherman's men, and the stories in town after town, village after village, are the same stories. We, we discussed a few of them. Uh, let me ask you this. How do you know that these stories aren't true? I mean, it seems uh, odd that, that, this, that, that this many houses were saved because a girl played the piano, Right. And that caused the soldiers not to burn the house down. Right. Uh, what evidence do you have that, that, that these stories aren't true? Well, let me give you two examples. A lot of these preservation tales uh, involve General Sherman himself. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stories. That, uh, Madison, Georgia, counts its, calls itself in its promotional literature the town that Sherman refused to burn. <laughs> now there are legends in Madison about why this happened. Sherman had a girlfriend there in the in the uh, pre-war years when he served down south. Uh, Sherman and the mayor met and uh, made an agreement. Uh, the women of town served Sherman a, a fried chicken dinner, and that that placated him. Or Sherman just took a look at, look at Madison and said, "This town is just too pretty to burn." 
okay, there's a problem. Sherman never entered Madison, Georgia. <laughs> okay. Now, there's another set of legends where a Southern family gives the Masonic sign. And frequently, again, this involves General Sherman or another officer. Uh, and thereby, their property is spared. Unfortunately, General Sherman wasn't a Mason. His father was a Mason, but Sherman wasn't. And consequently, it's easy to... <laughs> to so you can pretty much discount those stories at that point. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting, I think. Um, now you you show that these stories, um, you know, have, have roots in in sometimes in, in deeper archetypes and biblical stories or mythical stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that ties this to to current research. Uh, you mentioned uh, that no one else has really studied the, the civilian reactions in quite the same way. Um, uh, Jacqueline Glass Campbell wrote about Sherman's march through the Carolinas, mm-hmm. where she looked at very much at the women's responses, and came, she came away concluding that the women were more radical Confederates after Sherman had been there than before. Mm-hmm. But they 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 fiercely resisted. And that very much conforms with what you found. Uh, almost all the interactions that Sherman's men have with Confederate civilians, Southern civilians, are with women. Women and children. Um, well, a good percentage of the male population was at the front. Uh, the remaining white males, it seems, almost universally would flee knowing the advent of Sherman's men was near. Uh, they would take the black males and try to hide them someplace so they wouldn't be impressed or taken by the army or just run away to the Yankees. And they would hide themselves. And consequently, it was women and children primarily that uh, encountered Sherman's men. When you mentioned the slaves, uh, there what you found seems to, to fit with your great-grandfather's uh, recollection with your family's stories that Everywhere the Union Army went, there were flocks of slaves leaving the plantation. And in the the Confederate memory, this comes to us as shock and dismay and disappointment at the, the so-called disloyalty of the slaves who their white owners mistakenly thought were happy. Um, well, but, I, but, hope, I hope that I was a little more ambivalent than that because, unfortunately, there just isn't a whole lot of of uh, testimony to go on from the slaves themselves other than the WPA interviews which were done you know in the 1930s when these people were very very late in life and memories are hazy Um, and the universal exodus that's sort of the northern myth is belied by the actual statistics of how many slaves actually did flock to Sherman's army. Um, other historians have noted that the numbers, it wasn't a universal exodus. So uh, I think there's a lot more work that can be done to clarify you know, the role of blacks during Sherman's marches. I point out that uh, in the Carolinas' march, by that point, 
the the command was trying to um, trying to um, stop so many blacks from following the army, and there were just there were very smaller amount of them that did uh, during that campaign than during the Georgia campaign. And there's probably a lot of issues behind that. Ebenezer Creek, Sherman's meeting with Stanton in Savannah, Sherman's antipathy towards blacks in general. You know, there can be plenty of reasons for that to happen, too. I think it's a subject deserving more study, and I really just sort of touched on it in the most basic kind of way in, in my book. Well, I, I, that's certainly that wasn't the focus, and, and you do... You made a very good point, I thought, about the numbers, uh, just looking at how many refugees are following the army. Clearly, it's not a universal outpouring. And when you think about it realistically, not every you know, child, aged person is going to be able to accompany right. uh, an and, army. And the black so, testimony was, you know, uh, some of them claimed to have been as frightened as the, the white people were, and, and uh, they had lousy experiences with Sherman's men, too, because Sherman's men would just as soon take... You know, take a pork shoulder out of a black hut as as a white family's uh, smokehouse. And you point out again also Sherman's uh, antipathy personally toward the slaves, uh, although he he did well by them ultimately uh, in, in helping end the war for the uh, for their freedom. But you you mentioned offhand here Ebenezer Creek, and you mentioned it just in in passing in the book. Uh, at one point, Sherman's army does essentially uh, cut loose. They pull up the bridges behind them and leave uh, over a thousand refugees stranded on the far side, where they will be recaptured by Wheeler's cavalry. Mm-hmm. I guess the 154th New York had nothing to do with that, uh, strictly speaking. So there's no, not a reason a, to discuss that was it. The 14th Corps, you know, Jeff Jeff Davis's Corps. Uh, mm-hmm. The 154th was with the 20th Corps. Um, I mentioned Ebenezer Creek. To contrast it to a ludicrous um, episode that happened with the 154th at uh, Ogeechee River, where they destroyed the railroad bridge over this river, and uh, a family of blacks wanted to cross the river and join them, and um, one kind of heavyweight woman pulled one of the members of the 154th into the river as he was attempting to help her out of the river, and everybody got a good laugh out of that. And it just struck me that, you know, Ebenezer Creek was a few days later. So here's a, this lighthearted moment, if you will. Contrast that with the ugly reality of Ebenezer Creek. It's like I tell stories of 154th men who have these adventures while foraging, you know, close escapes. But then I close the book with telling about what happened up there in Greene County, North Carolina, where a couple parties of foragers just wound up in the wrong place at the wrong time, and two of them apparently were executed in cold blood by the Confederates after their capture. So it was a dangerous, ugly business. And and I don't want any of our listeners to get the impression that, you know, Sherman's March was some sort of lark picnic. Um, It was a a destructive march, and Southerners in Sherman's path certainly suffered as a result, but not to the extent that legend has it. And that's basically the point that I wanted to make. And I also really wanted to contrast 
the ultimate memories of the march, where Southerners regard Sherman and his men as literal demons. They couldn't use, they couldn't compare Sherman to, you know, more nefarious people than they did. Uh, whereas the Northern soldiers always cleansed and purified the marches of their uglier side and remembered them as this grand crusade for freedom you know, with the sweet potatoes popping out of the ground, just like in the song Marching Through Georgia, which they would sing with with gusto at their reunions. Now, when you went uh, in, in your more recent travels through the South, when, when you did the research for this book, for example, then uh, you closed the book talking about this a little bit, what do you encounter today in terms of memories of Sherman's March? Has the UDC... Uh, all-encompassing destruction story uh, continued to hold hold its own? I think it has, but it's hard to generalize, really. I, I met so many people that had different things to tell me. Uh, there's still some legends that are circulating that are fascinating, and I mentioned one in the book. A woman in South Carolina told me this story where General Sherman, and again, Sherman is frequently at the center of these stories. Why tell a story about, you know, Joe Schmo, some second lieutenant in a Pennsylvania regiment, when it can be about General Sherman himself? Uh, Sherman had the floor of a church reinforced so he could stable his horses in the church. And I said to the woman, this is the only time I've heard any story of General Sherman doing something constructive in the South. (laughs) But his constructive act was to facilitate a deplorable act. But again, Alyssa Henkin points out that legends of soldiers stabling their horses in churches date back to the, the Middle Ages, I believe. So, you know, this is, this is a legendary motif that, that has long roots. And uh, I just became fascinated with the whole memory aspect of the march uh, and, and these contrasting memories that, you know, do linger today. And and one thing that was really nice for me is I, I mentioned at the start of the book this box of cotton balls that my great-grandfather, John Longhouse, according to our family legend, picked during the march to the sea. And the fact that the cotton balls themselves were always the focus of our family's attention, but I became interested in the box that held the cotton balls. And it's a very delicate little feminine thing. It must have belonged to a woman. It's got a mirror on the inside of the lid. It's got a picture of a woman on the on, on the lid pretty paper. It's very nice, very nice little box. And I'm thinking, where did he get this box? Did he take this off of a, a dresser in, in Georgia or out of a parlor in, in one of the Carolinas? And I wondered if I was going to find a similar artifact, a similar relic in my travels down south. And I did, uh, outside of Sandersville, Georgia, where, where two delightful mother-daughter team invited me into their home, which was on the scene of the march, uh, Forest Grove Plantation, and it had been overrun, and and uh, the patriarch had been killed at the Battle of Mal- Malvern Hill, leading a Georgia regiment, leaving his wife and children and the slaves to face the Yankees alone, and and these ladies shared some great stories to me about the... Uh, their time there, and one of the stories had to do with this this uh, glass dome with artificial flowers in it that one of the 
the daughters had made. And a Yankee came and picked up this artifact and was going to smash it on the floor. And, and the girl pleaded with the Yankee to, to not destroy this thing. And he very carefully heeded her plea, set it on the floor. So when I visited it, I was able to see this dome and the, and the uh, artificial flowers still sitting on the same mantelpiece parlor, uh, you know, close to 150 years later. And that was really a nice connection for me. Uh, that, that people still have these these objects that, that speak to them of, of this earlier time. Yeah, uh, exactly. In in ways that mine spoke to me, you know, as a child, uh, and and led to all this. Uh, it was just I just really enjoyed that. Well, I will say I really enjoyed reading this book. And listeners, I know you will also want to get a copy of Marching with Sherman through Georgia and the Carolinas with the 154th New York. It it's far beyond the the ordinary uh, uh, regimental history of who marched where and when. You do learn that. There are some wonderful maps that, that trace the regiment's route. Um, there's no combat in it, if that's what you're looking for. Uh, the regiment didn't fight, but there were casualties, as we just heard, uh, individual foragers being picked off. But it's a much more fascinating story, I think, of, of, of what this moment meant for Americans North and South, Sherman's March, something everybody to this day has some idea about uh, whether right or wrong or accurate or not. So uh, listeners, you'll you'll enjoy this book. And Mark, uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. I, I hope we can do this again maybe sooner than five years next time. Jerry, thanks very much. I enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.